And thank you. Turn tonight, please, once again to Titus chapter 2. We've been dealing with the pastorals. And, of course, back and forth a little bit with the holiday schedule will always be this way. I suppose we took a week off for Thanksgiving, and we'll take a couple of weeks off at Christmas. The last time we were in this book, a couple of weeks ago, I dealt with the first six verses, or the verse five. We will read through them again. And I had a couple of uh, responses at the end of the message that I thought were appropriate to it and that I would share with you. One was uh, a much more optimistic viewpoint that I perhaps had painted of uh, young ladies who desire to be married and raise families, and that's a very good thing, and I'm very glad for that. Um, and the second was a question about where, where will these young ladies find young men? And uh, that is a real problem, and it really is a real problem um, in our society. We have, on the one hand, the increasing masculinization of women, uh, the cultural pressure that a woman can do and ought to do anything that a man can do. And then we have what appears to be the never-ending adolescence of so many young men um, whose entire life, it seems, is given over to uh, the Internet, not for research purposes or for productivity purposes, but for immoral purposes and entertainment purposes. Um, but even when the Internet was not available, these things were obviously problems, for Paul is addressing them a couple of thousand years ago uh, to churches. Let's go ahead and stand, please, and we're going to read down through verse number 8 of Titus chapter number 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior, as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And we will stop there and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant, again, not just to us at Westwood Heights, but to all of your people, and particularly since this is the directive of the Word of God this evening to the young men, those that are younger, that they would take to heart your instruction and live their lives in accordance with your will. And I pray this for them in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, one of the things that we've noted, particularly from the book of Titus, 
is that God is very concerned that the lives that we live do not in any way mar or corrupt the things that He teaches. And once again, He has returned to that as an ideal. And this should not come as any great surprise to us because we are all aware of both the peril and the power of hypocrisy. We, we know by hard experience <clears throat> the, the black eye that Christianity gets when people blatantly do not live to the ideal they profess. Um, I'm sure I've told this before. We had fairly close friends in our home church. <clears throat> he was several years ahead of me in college. He was a senior when I was a freshman. But <clears throat> they were very good to us. But unbeknownst to the vast majority of people in the congregation, certainly to us, theirs was a troubled marriage, a very troubled marriage. <clears throat> and the conduct <clears throat> went accordingly. And one day when we came back to Detroit from, on a break from college <clears throat> um, and were at church, they had, they had separated and they were not living together. And in the course of conversing with him, he and I met, not that I was any kind of counselor to him, but we met, we knew each other, we were friends, and you know, he just talked to me a little bit about what's going on. He just looked at me and said, my children don't want anything to do with the Lord. They don't want anything to do with the Lord. We all know the power and the peril of hypocrisy. So when God says things like he says in the book of Titus, don't live in such a way as to make me look bad, which is kind of my paraphrase, right? that should not sound out of kilter to us. That should be taken very seriously by us. And those of you who <clears throat> are raising children, particularly teenage children, know that their hip hypocrisy meter runs at a high sensitivity level. So we should not ever take any of this lightly. So Paul has spoken to those that are old in verses 1 through 4. And again, for the sake of context, we labeled those who are older as those whose children are no longer living at home. And then in verses 4 and 5, he turns his attention to the younger wives and mothers. And again, for the sake of context, younger would be, I think, anybody who has children at home. And now in verses 6 through 8, he turns his attention to young men. Now this would be just my understanding. I just want to take a second and talk about a little bit about the structure of what he has done. When it comes to the relationship, he begins with older men, and then he moves to older women, and then he talks about the way that older women, men, or I'm sorry, older women are to influence younger women. That the older women are to live in such a way that they might teach the younger women. And then he turns his attention back to the younger men, and then he says to Titus, now you be an example. And I think that there's a bit of a mirroring there. And I've I talked a lot about the fact that I don't know that what Paul is arguing 
is that the older ladies should have some kind of class. I'm not opposed to that, but I don't think that's what Paul's getting at, that there should be some kind of classroom instruction and a full-blown curriculum where these things are taught. I think his primary focus is that the older women should live in such a way that the younger women know what to do. And I would base that on part from the fact that he says in verses 6 through 8, now you younger men, you need to live a certain way and you need to have some examples and in this case the example is going to be Titus. There are things, folks, that I as a male pastor can do that are going to be examples that everybody could follow. All right, if I could put it this way, right? in the world of academics, we know that some people can learn by reading a book, and we know that other people are visual learners. They need to see. Christianity is a religion that embraces both concepts. There is a book, and you can learn from the book, but there are visuals We are supposed to be living in such a way that others can be instructed and know what to do from the lives that we live. So there are ways in which any pastor or any of the elder men can be an example that others can follow. But again, I'm not trying to be funny and I'm not trying to be goofy, but there is no way that I can role model for you the life that a young lady should follow. I am neither young nor lady. I once was young, but I have never been lady. So I can tell you what God says. I've done that. But you younger ladies that have children at home or hope to have children at home, you need to be consciously, deliberately looking around the building at ladies who have raised children. Take a measure of what kind of children and what kind of lives they lead. Do they line up with the Bible? And then you should imitate them. You should follow them. I think that's what Paul is getting at. And the same thing is true for the men. You younger men, we'll come to this, you younger men, right? You should be looking at the kind of lives that the older men have lived. And of course, this would certainly, we would hope, be your dad and your grandpa and your uncles, but also your pastor and other men that you can look up to as examples of godliness. This is kind of the way that it is supposed to go. Christianity is not, by its very existence, folks, a practice that is given to novelty and innovation. It is given to biblical tradition. What one generation did properly, the next generation is supposed to do. So let's turn our attention then this evening to verses 6. Through eight. First of all, Pastor Titus is instructed to exhort young men to be sober-minded. Verse 6 is very simple. It is very straightforward. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Right? Elderly people, men and women, are exhorted to be sober-minded. Elderly women are to live and speak in such a way to encourage younger women to be sober-minded. And young men are to be encouraged to be sober-minded. This is a dominant, recurring theme. And I want to talk again about it, folks, because, right, and I I really, truly am reluctant to come to the pulpit and be critical of our King James translation. But when our translators take the same, take one Greek word, and in the course of a paragraph, translated, or in a book in this case, 
translated with a couple of different English words, we don't always capture the idea of what is going on. In verse number 6 here, sober-minded is actually a verb. Young men encourage, exhort to be sober-minded. Let me give to you one of the ways that word is translated in the Gospels. Sober-minded. Mark chapter 5 and verse number 15, and they come to Jesus and see him with see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting clothed here's the translation in the gospels and in his right mind and in his right mind to be sober minded is to be right minded and to be right minded for a christian is to think about things the way god does Certainly not the way the world does, and not even the way that seems like the best way in our minds. It is to think about things the way that God does. As a verb, as it is used here in verse number 6, it means to put your mind to the task of thinking properly. It is an activity, it is something to do. Gentlemen, this is something for you to do. Right? You exercise your bodies. You run them through some rigorous discipline with a purpose. Perhaps you discipline your diets. You you restrict yourselves or confine yourselves to certain foods or deny yourself certain foods at certain times for a purpose. Here the idea is carried over to the mind. To be conscious, to put your mind to work at this. And I think we all understand, folks, that good Christianity will never happen to anybody by accident. Nobody will ever fall into it. They will deliberately choose it or they will walk away from it. That is all that will ever happen. If you go back up to chapter 2 and verse number 4, we have another verb form of the word. That they may teach the young women to be sober. Same word. Same kind of verb, a little bit different, but we won't worry about too much about that. That the women should be the same way. Young women should put their minds to thinking in the right mind. And of course, again, folks, without belaboring it and going back and going back all through it, in God's world, a right-minded young woman is going to think differently than a right-minded young man because they were never designed to be the same thing. Boys are boys, girls are girls. And our function is different. And so for a young man to be right-minded is not going to look the same as when a young lady is right-minded. Just not. They're different, but they're both in their right minds. In verse number 2, I just want to talk for a minute about this word and the way we find it in the book of Titus. In verse verse number 2, you have the word sober, the aged men be sober, but that's not the same word. The word that we're using in verse 6 and verse 8 is actually temperate. And there it is in its adjective form. What What should the men be like? They should be temperate. They should be in their right minds. And then in verse number 5, it is translated with the word discreet. So we have this same word, folks. And again, as I say, I'm really not trying to beat up on our beloved King James Bible. But you have Paul used one word that you have as temperate in verse number 2 
as discreet in verse number 5, as sober in verse number 6, and then a completely different word that is sober in verse number 2. That is translated sober in verse number 2. But the idea is always the same, right? It is either putting your mind to being right-minded or being the kind of quality of being right-minded that somebody would describe you as in your right mind. This is the exhortation. It is God's desire that we have our thinking straight. It is God's desire that men and women think properly. They think properly about themselves. They think properly about their identity and their gender. They think properly about their responsibilities before the Lord and before others. They are in the right mind. And I would point out, folks, that just as in verses 1 and 2, God does not give the elderly a pass. You have served your function. You've done your work. You've raised your kids. You're good. Take it easy. Sit back. Neither does he say to those that are young, whether they are male or female, you're young, you have many years, sow your wild oats, live yourself a great time, have a lot of fun. One of these days it'll be time to grow up. What he says is, if you're young, now is the time. Now is the time to grow up. And so Paul begins by pointing out that Timothy's instruction, this is what pastors are to do. They are to exhort, they are to call, to summons, to appeal to young men to be of the right mind. And of course, as always, for a Christian to be of the right mind is to be of the Lord's mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think about things the way God thinks about them. And then verses 7 and 8, Titus is instructed to be an example of that kind of mind. So pastors are to teach it. That's the easy part of being a pastor. Pastors are to live it. That's the tough part of being a pastor. Verse 7. In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. And if you ask what's the connection. Well whoever did a good work without thinking the right way about it. Our works are a reflection of our thoughts. If we don't think properly, we will never act properly. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. And I'm going to stop there. We'll take up the rest of the verse in our third point. Paul is, or Titus is instructed to be an example of sober-mindedness. This is given to him again because of his role as a pastor. And it is given to him because of his ministry to the younger men. To be an example to them. And so in every single thing in verse number 7. In all things showing thyself a pattern. And that's a word that we're very familiar with in the Bible. Because it is the word type. In fact, our very English word type comes from the Greek word. They sound very similar. Being a type. Being a type in good works. Which is yet again another strain, dominant strain in the book of Titus. Titus is concerned that our lives do not 
mar or corrupt or defile God's teaching. And the way that we do that is by having a life that is filled with good works. It's described in verse number 7. All things showing thyself a pattern of good works. If you look at chapter 2 and verse number 14 of Jesus who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Chapter 3 verse number 1 put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers to obey magistrates to be ready to every good work. And verse number 14 of chapter 3, let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. So it's kind of, the, it's kind of one coin with two sides, right? Don't, don't corrupt the doctrine. How do I not corrupt the doctrine? Maintain good works. And although we're going to get, I'm going to break it down into a little bit of detail here. Broadly, folks, in its simplest form, when God talks to us about good works, right, what he primarily has in mind is that we do what he tells us to do. I am grateful. I really am grateful for those working in the nursery. Grateful for those teaching Sunday school. Grateful for those of you that sing in the choir. Grateful certainly for Kelly and the ladies who work in the academy and grateful for those who labor and grateful for those of you who do the things that need to be done. And those are all good works. But when the Bible talks about good works, it is primarily concerned that what we are doing are the things the Lord tells us to do in our homes, in our private lives, in our personal lives, in our secret lives, that we're doing those things that are the things that God wants done. Those are the good works that really get his attention, that we do what he tells us to do. But in this case, Paul breaks down good works along two lines. And without bogging down into all of the minutiae of that, Here's the, way I'm going to, here's the way I'm going to walk us through verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> These are not just a list of standalone things. In other words, it's not like a bunch of bullet points, do this, do this, and do this. That what Paul has in mind is, first of all, in verse number 7, doctrine. The content of his doctrine So that Titus is to be a type in the things that he believes. In the content of what he believes. Doctrine. Those things that are taught. You know folks, we're all taught on a daily basis. We don't have to be be sitting in a classroom to be taught. Every time somebody tries to sell you something, they're trying to teach you something in doing it. If you will buy this product, you will get this result. We are constantly being instructed. Every time some Hollywood actor, are there any other kinds, tells us to follow our hearts, we are being taught. 
And anytime anybody tells us that anything a man can do, a woman can do just as well, if not better, we're being taught. When it comes to Bible doctrine, there are things that are taught concerning the content of our doctrine. To go back to the verse, and all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. What do you have in mind specifically? The content of what you believe. Doctrine. In doctrine showing uncorruptness. The idea there is soundness. The idea there is soundness. Um, Some of our former members came to town Friday. Brad and Mary came to town. We got together and had dinner with Rick and Iva. And he was just telling me about a house that, that they had attached some of the boards. I mean, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know I'm not getting into all the details. But the, the way they had attached the boards for the decking was not correct. And the house, had, the, the, the studs and the, and the sill plate of the house itself had begin to rot, begun to rot and begun to sag. It was rotten. It was rotten. It's possible, folks, to have rotten Bible doctrine. It's possible to have bad Bible doctrine. It really is possible, folks, to find in the Bible almost anything you want to find. If you're willing to ignore certain things, alter certain things, misread certain things, misemphasize certain things, it's all there. It's all there. But with reference to the content of what the pastor believes... It should be uncorrupted, incorruptible. And he should be with reference to the things that he believes, to go back to verse number 7, grave, gravity. And the idea is that he holds the things that he believes sincerely and in seriousness, not lightheartedly and frivolously. Not as if he does this, but there are really other things that are more consequential and influential. A pattern. A pattern. And this is because, folks, this is not just something that pastors should do. This is something that congregants should do. They should be sound in their doctrine. And serious about the fact that God is telling us how to live. How, not, and not just how to live, but how to live well and to prepare to live eternally. And it should, in verse number 7, be in sincerity. And the idea there, it doesn't really come across in the English, but the idea of sincerity is perpetuity. And in fact, the Greek word that is used there is translated immortality in Romans 2.7. So that there is a continuity to this. That it, that it isn't moved about by all different... Well, I really believe this, and then this set of circumstances came in and began to push against it, and so as the circumstances pushed against it, I got pushed. And I think without going back and try to build it and develop it, I think that we should just understand this as being taught in contrast to what is going on in verse one, chapter 1 and verse 11, the false teachers who are catering and crafting the content of their doctrine 
according to the desires of what people wanted to hear. This is something we get into 2 Timothy that Paul will deal with extensively. This is something, folks, that is a very real problem in the American church where all of us, not just, not just people who sit in the pews, but those of us who are pastors, are thoroughly imbued with a marketing mindset to all of life. Everything is a commodity that is to be bought and sold. Everything could be marketed and, and, and merchandised more effectively. Why not bring it to the scriptures? So with reference to the content of the doctrine, be this kind of example, right? Be sound, healthy. Be serious. Be continuous. And then in verse number 8, I think, so right, so I'm dealing with the passage, folks. Doctrine in the content, verse number 7. The expression of the doctrine, verse number 8. Sound speech. Sound speech. Healthy. Right? Just as the content of the doctrine is healthy, so the expression of that doctrine is healthy. A body of beliefs that is pure, eternal, and serious must be expressed in a pure, serious way. Both in the proclamation from the pulpit and the way that it is lived. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. The idea is without fault. In Galatians 2.11, that word is used by Paul of Peter. He was to be blamed. He was to be blamed. You could put your finger on Peter and go, you are wrong here. The example that is expected is an example that is not in that condition. In 1 John 3, 20 and 21, it is translated with the words condemned. If our hearts condemn us, if our hearts condemn us. So we take that word and we bring it to verse number 8, and there, oh, the only difference there is that it's modified negatively. It cannot be condemned. It cannot be blamed. The expression of one's doctrine. Sound speech. The word is lagos. We will talk about this a little more detail on the night of the cantata. Lagos is a Greek word that can be used to describe both an internal and an external expression of reality. So Titus is to exhort the young men to be in their right minds. And then he is not simply to say that and walk out of the pulpit or live outside of the church as somebody who is out of his mind, but he is to be an example. And again, this is not just something for pastors, folks. This is something that all believers are to embrace. And that brings us to the end of verse number 8, and Paul explains why this must be. And once again, we return to the world of the outsider. Verse number 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. 
The words contrary part refers to somebody who is an opponent, an adversary, somebody I would, I would just think simply somebody who is an unbeliever. That somebody who is taking opposition, and it need not even be an unbeliever, it might be a Christian who is opposing the biblical definition of sound doctrine. That he who is the opponent, verse number 8, might be ashamed. And again, to us, to be ashamed is to be embarrassed or to be humiliated. But the real meaning of the word as Paul is using it is to be confounded. Their, their strategy has no traction. The idea actually is to be turned back. Right? Somebody is making a frontal attack. <clears throat> but you put up a successful defense and they are turned away. That's what Paul is getting at here. Having no evil thing to say of you. Now, <clears throat> right? What, what is Paul doing? Because he's not, he's not playing semantic word games here, folks. <clears throat> Paul is not suggesting <clears throat> that people will not be opposed to biblical Christianity. In other words, gentlemen, I don't think that anybody is living in this bubble, but if you are, I'm going to burst it. Paul is not suggesting that you can live in such a way as a believer that you will never be persecuted or ridiculed for your belief. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is this. Live so consistently as a Christian that if somebody is opposed to Christianity, they can't be opposed to your practice of it. That no matter how much they find fault with the body of material that is taught, you are consistent in living out the body of material that is taught. If you look carefully, I think that it's pretty easy to see that's what he's getting at. Right? On the one hand, in verse number 5, he doesn't want the word of God blasphemed. But in verse number 8, that he may have no evil thing to say, not of the doctrine, but of you. Of you. So that a consistent Christian testimony, right? It isn't that somebody will go, oh, you just live such a sterling life as a Christian that Christianity must be right. It is that you are living such a sterling life as a Christian that even though I think Christianity is goofy, you're living it the way it ought to be lived. That's what Paul has in mind. In other words, gentlemen, once again, this is more closely tied to God than it is to anything else in the world, right? We might be inclined to say, young men, you need to be sober-minded. You need to get your thinking right. You're young men. Now is the time to get an education to build a career so that you can be well ahead when you're 40 and 50 years old. But that is not at all where God goes with this. He's not zeroing in on your economic well-being. He's not zeroing in on your home life per se, on how to have the happiest life to be the best version of you that you can be. He is concerned always. Right? The, the world, folks, sometimes more clearly than we do, the world knows what a Christian ought to look like. 
Now, we don't just fall over and cave into everything that a Christian, that the world says a Christian ought to be because they don't know everything. But we ought to live consistently, clearly like Christians so that it is known, so that people see that our Christianity is consistent with what Christianity ought to be. So, once again, down through this passage, and in verse number 9, he's just going he's to take the same ideas and he's going to extend it to the next demographic. To the aged men, to the aged women, to the young women, to the young men, to the pastor, everybody, everybody in their right mind. In their right mind about what God says for them in their gender and their station in life. Everybody in their right mind. Let's pray together this evening. Father, grant this to us. That our young men would think the way you want young men to think. And that our young ladies would think the way you want them to think. And that our adults whose children are grown, both men and women, would think the way they ought to think. And that pastor would think the way he ought to think. And that all of our thinking would be developed and taught by your beautiful, uncorrupted doctrine. So that you are never bad-mouthed and the consistency of our Christian lives is known. Please help us to that. Thank you, Father, for our church, for our time of fellowship, that you would bless the food we're about to eat. Thank you for those that prepare it. Bless, Lord, now our business meeting. We ask to make wise decisions. Your will would be done. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.